Balls. He's a libertarian in chief. This is the libertarian chief chat. Just a libertarian chit chat with the chief. Oh, hey, I'm Kevin. I'm here too. All right. Welcome to Chief Chats with Todd Hagopian and Kevin Hobby. I'm Kevin Hobby. And I'm Todd Hagopian, and we have a fantastic guest on today, uh, one of our favorite members of the Oklahoma Libertarian Party, Chris Powell. Chris, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, I'm a longtime member of the Oklahoma Libertarian Party and uh, currently a member of the Bethany City Council, so I'm one of those rare breeds of uh, libertarian elected officials. <laughs> it's fantastic. And actually, there's uh, more backstory to this that we should probably get into before we all jump in. And Chris is, I believe, I hope I don't offend anybody else, I believe Chris was the first Oklahoma libertarian that I talked to when I came to Oklahoma. And I believe that uh, first uh, Twitter exchange actually happened when I was still in Ohio on my way to Oklahoma while you were in the governor's race. Um, you and I didn't get close probably until after the governor's race when you started running for city council. Um, but the interesting part of the story is, is that Kevin reached out to me sometime therein and said, hey, I want to get involved in the Oklahoma party. Who should I talk to? And I gave him your name. And so, and then Kevin winds up being the vice chair of the party. And then Kevin drags me in and has me become, you know, recruits me to be the Northeast chair of the party. So all roads lead back to Chris, uh, <laughs> that, he, that he took both Kevin and I from being loudmouth Twitter folks uh, to actually being productive, you know, involved members of the Oklahoma LP. Uh, if I get that story right, Kevin, I think that's how yeah, it all. Yeah, that's 100% right. It all, all roads lead back to Chris. <laughs> so, so what I hear you saying is that uh, for Kevin and Todd, I'm the one responsible. That's yes. right. Everything that we do wrong from here forward is your fault. Yes. <laughs> I think. But even to this day, I think Kevin and I both uh, put you out there whenever anyone's talking about, you know, the LP in Oklahoma and who should they talk to if they're interested. And uh, we usually send them your way first and then, and then move on from there. But Thank you again for coming on. I think this is going to be a good episode, folks. We're going to be talking a lot about the nomination process in the Libertarian Party. Uh, there's multiple levels that we'll be talking about, both on how states work in nominating local races and state races, along with how the presidential process works. Um, one thing that we ran into this year uh, that was interesting in, in my eyes, because I haven't been in the party uh, for very many cycles, is that when Joe Jorgensen got nominated, there were a number of libertarians that didn't even realize that that had happened. Um, and, then, and then when they found out it had happened, didn't understand what the process was to get there. Now the three of us on this call listened to all the debates, you know, had multiple discussions between amongst us, you know, and, and talked to a hundred other delegates here and there throughout the, the primary season. You know, we were intimately involved, but not everybody was, and not everybody understood it, and that and that caused some rifts right out of the gate, which was the worst thing that could possibly happen, you know, in a presidential election during that time period, uh, which was kind of the May-June time period. So um, maybe we'll start with the presidential, just because it's most relevant, um, and it's kind of what people were interested in uh, on Twitter. So Chris, do you want to walk us through... Um, 
how it works and then we'll just come in with questions and comments from there just the whole presidential nomination yeah, process just, just starting with you know how how nothing really or so let's start with how the campaign starts because that happens way before delegates are even picked and we'll just kind of roll through the whole process so take us through now you're talking 2022 we probably have the first few candidates start to announce for 2024 what's it all going to look like how can people get involved you know let's talk through it well the actually there's really not much in the way of set rules uh, that you have to follow. I mean, no candidate has to participate in any primaries. No candidate has to uh, necessarily meet any particular uh, standards or anything. Now, to be listed as an official candidate by the party, uh, they are going to want you to be, I believe you need to be a lifetime member, and there's some things like that. But you can be, you know, it, it, there's a potential that somebody could be completely unaffiliated with the party and then uh, show up at the convention, I'm a candidate. And if the delegates choose that person, uh, they're nominated. Uh, now you've got to be, you know, you, you, you've got to meet the initial nomination uh, process at the convention and there's tokens and yeah. there's a bunch of stuff to that. Yeah. And, I so don't know the ins and outs of that as, yeah. as much as anybody else. Uh, yeah. But as far as uh, the process of getting to the convention, uh, you don't actually have to do anything in particular. Now, I, that's a poor strategy. And yeah. <laughs> as a practical matter, you're not going to get anywhere. But um, there's, we don't have the same process of binding delegates by primaries that the establishment parties have uh, and I will say that even though they have that process uh, as a practical matter by the time they get to convention they usually have thrown that out the window already so right. it even in that case even with the establishment parties the primaries are only binding to a certain extent sure and now let's let's use 2020 as an example because I think people know the name so it'll it'll help them figure it out so the people that announced early were people like Adam Kokesh. I think Berman Supreme was out there pretty early, if I remember right. Um, yeah, I think Ken, there were a few Ken was smaller a candidates. Early. Yeah, there were a few smaller candidates that were out early. Um, and by early, I mean maybe 2018, 2019. Um, by the fourth quarter of 2019, we still didn't have that very many candidates that people knew. I think that Hornberger didn't get in until December of 19. And I think Joe was right around that time, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, and Joe, I, I would say, didn't even really start exploding until more like February of 20. Uh, Mons was late too. I think Mons was in late Q4, early Q1. Um, so the reason I'm bringing that up is just to give people an idea of in the party, it has been perfectly acceptable to not announce your candidacy or start campaigning until the year of the election. And the reason that is, from my understanding, is because the way you win a nomination in the Libertarian Party is to win the delegates votes at the convention. And the delegates themselves are not even going to be named by any state in the entire nation 
until January 1st at the earliest. Is that correct, Chris? I, I believe that's correct. Um, but you know, states do that typically at their state conventions and those occur throughout the spring leading up to the national convention. Uh, to your point, you know, to the, to the big players in the presidential race were people that entered late. Yeah. Jim Gray, uh, who, when Lincoln Chafee dropped out, Jim Gray thought that that created a space for the kind of candidate that, uh, that he was looking for. And so he decided to try to fill that niche. And then uh, Justin Amash was yeah. a late entrant. And then of course he actually dropped out before the convention itself. Uh, but of course they both met the qualifications of being lifetime member members of the LP and having all the credentials that uh, to be an official candidate yeah, and had sufficient, had, you know, had quite a bit, uh, both had quite a bit of support uh, among delegates. Sure. And to be fair, and I, I am a Justin Mosh fan. He's one of the reasons I'm in the party and got interested in libertarianism. But to be fair, one week prior to him entering the race, he was not, he would not have met the criteria. He was not a lifetime member. You know what I mean? So yeah. the reason I point that out is because people can come in at the last minute and it has happened actually in the past. What was the candidate who came in and kind of the Republican who came in? I'm trying to think. Bob Barr. Bob Barr. Yeah. yeah. So talk to me about how Bob Barr happened just so people understand. Yeah, that was that was a poor choice. Yeah. But basically it was a Republican that came in and offered name recognition. Is that right? Pretty much. Uh, we had one of the other candidates that was uh, in the mix that year was Mary Ruert, and we would have yeah. uh, been much better off to, to have chosen Mary Ruert. Yeah, Mary Ruert, uh, the fantastic author, um, who's also very active on social media. You, you all should be talking to her and reading her stuff. Um, and she even, every single election, her name comes up as somebody who people still want to run. Um, but okay, let's go back and start talking about the states a little bit. So as you go through this nomination process, let's talk about uh, Oklahoma. So we were all delegates in Oklahoma. Um, our convention, unfortunately, got delayed because of COVID, but we had a um, basically a nominating convention to, to elect our delegates and to do a straw poll. You guys all remember that? Everyone yep. was there. Yep. Okay. Um, and so that would have normally had happened at a convention. And what happens is the delegates get elected by the body. So we had, you know, whatever, 50, 35 to 50 people that were voting at that time. I can't remember. Um, and certain of us stood for delegate election. And I believe all of us got elected in that process. Um, and, uh, and those delegates then become the ones with the votes at the convention, right? And to your point, Chris, we then took a straw poll afterwards. And I believe Jim Gray had just entered the race at that point in time, uh, like the day before or something, because I think I remember his name getting a vote or two. Um, and Amash was not in the race at that time. So it just goes to show you how late certain people did enter that it was basically after our convention um, had gone over. And so the straw poll at that time went Hornberger. Um, and the interesting part of that, just to touch on, is that at the end, at the convention, 
Chris, you and I were there. Um, there was exactly one vote for Hornberger from Oklahoma, and it was me. <laughs> and and <clears throat> Buddy won the straw poll. And so that's what I want to talk about here. So A, our primary got canceled, and B, the straw poll didn't mean anything. So talk a little bit about that, Chris, just so people can understand. Well, lots of uh, lots of different states, and every different state has their own system as far as whether they even have a primary or they have a, you know, have parties have caucuses. Well, the state doesn't tell them to have caucuses. That's a party run uh, thing. We had, just like the establishment parties, we had a mix of states that had primaries and had their own caucuses or straw polls and what have you. Uh, the one difference being that we don't bind our delegates in any event, but uh, even in the states for the establishment parties, again, where they do bind the delegates, they're not really bound. Party rules can overrule that, and the establishment parties do it all the time, where they make their nominations unanimous or whatever the case may be. Uh, so that whole binding thing is, to me, it's a it's a non-argument right. uh, that it should be binding because. You know, you do have a very fluid situation and you can have things change at the last minute and get to convention and the delegates have the power. The delegates are the people who have been chosen to make those, uh, make that decision and make the nomination decision. And they can look at all those primary results all across the country and see how that works. Uh, but yeah, we had several states that had uh, nomination, nominating or had primaries uh, Oklahoma did not because nobody paid the fee to enter our primary. And so we did not have a primary contest here. Right. Now, one of the things that happened, I was doing my best to encourage candidates to enter our primary, but the, there was a concern by most of those candidates that uh, uh, they either didn't have the funds to pay the $5,000 fee or they had it, but they thought it would be better used on something else besides that. But what happened here in Oklahoma was that since we regained ballot access in 2016, the only time that we have had a drop in our registration numbers was during the presidential primary because people were, they thought that we were not a party anymore or they wanted to vote in one of the other party primaries they wanted to participate in that process and we lost a significant chunk of uh, of our registrations now after that was over it picked back up again and we've actually done very well this year we're i believe we're uh, knocking on the door of fifteen thousand if we're not there already but not having that primary when the establishment parties are having theirs and everybody can see that and where are the libertarians, it's a problem. Yeah. Um, some of the other things that happened in the primaries were uh, Missouri, they have a $1,000 filing fee, and the only person that, that paid the fee was uh, Jacob Hornberg. Yeah. And so he beat none of the above um, fairly, fairly soundly. And, you know, he got the win for that, and he got his, they were, the, the results were reported and all of that. But in none of these primaries, with the lone exception of North Carolina, where uh, did anybody really campaign right. to win those primary votes? Um, Hornberger uh, did some, put some effort into reaching out to some 
different constituencies that are out of the normal libertarian kind of stereotypes. And, uh, but we really didn't see any results uh, to indicate that we got anything out of that in, in the primary results. So to me, that's something that we need to work on going forward. Those primaries, I don't, I don't want them to be binding and I'll argue with anybody who does, but they are trial heats. They're opportunities to see what our people can do and have them compete against each other. And if we can see from those primaries that we've got somebody who's really good at taking the libertarian message and selling it to a broader audience, and we can see that, then the delegates at the convention will, will respond accordingly because they'll have the evidence in front of them. So let's talk about the difference between a primary and say a straw poll. Um, so typically how I understand it is the primary say here in Oklahoma, you know, you have 15,000 registered libertarians who can vote, let's say three to 7,000 of them get out to vote. You mm -hmm. end up picking a winner among three to 7,000, you know, votes. Um, at the convention, you know, when we did our straw poll, you're talking about 35 to 60 people that were, mm -hmm. that were casting votes at that thing. I can't remember. It might've been more than that, but less than a hundred were casting votes in the straw poll, right? And then mm -hmm. at, the, at the convention, you've only got 14 delegates coming out of Oklahoma. So the reason I think Chris is arguing for a primary here is because you're not necessarily just targeting the activists who sometimes, you know, will veer um, towards the, uh, the toughest candidate or the most this candidate or the most that candidate. I think what Chris is saying is, primaries are helpful because you see who can, who can um, endear themselves to the 5,000 libertarians out there and potentially even more, you know. Well, not just the registered libertarians, uh, but who can get a bunch of people to change their registration to libertarian, or if it's an open primary, uh, in Oklahoma, we could choose to open it to independents, not Republicans and Democrats, but we could choose to open it to independents as well. If you had somebody who came in here and campaigned and not only got 5,000 libertarians to show up and vote, but got another 10,000 independents to show up and vote for them, uh, that, would, that would say a great deal. Yeah, so I think that's, that can transition us into the next part of the topic, which might be open versus closed primaries. But first, before we get there, because I know that'll be fun, uh, before we get to open versus closed primaries, let's just talk about the binding for one more minute. Um, is it actually against the rules to make it binding? That's how I understand it, is that you're not allowed to make it binding. Is that correct for us? I believe it's in the party bylaws uh, that... And you were going to say that word, because that's what I want to get to, is can you talk a little bit about why bylaws are important? Because I know that the Twitter sphere goes crazy whenever anyone says bylaws because you know why do we have to listen to blah 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 their bylaws play play an important role sometimes too important sometimes you know what I mean but can you talk a little bit about why bylaws are important for state parties and national parties and why they should be followed or changed if you don't like them well it's just it's how it's the rule book for how the party operates and if you want to change the bylaws to make the primaries binding, I'll argue with you, but you know, you can, you can do that. Uh, that's, you know, just changing the rule book is all it is all it is. But if you don't have the rules, 
and you don't set what those rules are, and it's completely an ad hoc process, uh, that can lead you down to some, to some uh, really uh, unhelpful uh, results if you go about it that way. You can look at like the Constitution Party where, I mean, and they have bylaws, but you can see more of the uh, lack of order. They have affiliates that have disaffiliated and will run different presidential candidates um, because of disagreements that they have with the National Party. And we need to all agree on the rule book and go by the rule book. Uh, one of the, and of course, libertarians are, are more than happy to argue with each other uh, at any, any available opportunity. But that was a big deal with the, with the convention, you know, with the virtual convention and then with the uh, follow-up with, you know, being able to participate virtually or in person. And there was a lot of fighting about the bylaws and, and we're going to fight about that. That's the nature of libertarians and the nature of party politics. It's just how, how it is, but we fight about the rules and we don't fight about, you know, just might makes right. Uh, And if anybody is going to be about following the rules uh, that we all voluntarily agreed to at least agreed to the process to come up with them, it ought to be us. Uh, Nobody is forced to be a libertarian. So, yeah. you know, if you don't like the way that it's going, uh, you chose to be here. And yeah. so, you know, it's, you don't win everything either. Yeah. I know we all think we're all the, the only real libertarian and everything, <laughs> but you know, you don't, uh, other people think the same thing and they have, they have rights and voice uh, and a voice too. And I think it's important to know a couple of things. One, you can change them. So at, at convention, we can change bylaws, we can make changes. Um, so, but again, before we get to open versus close, let's just close the loop here. I'm talking about how that presidential um, candidate gets chosen. So now fast forward, we've done our primaries, we've done our straw polls, we've now chosen delegates, these candidates, by the way, may or may not even have a full list of the delegates, right? So delegates are, you know, most of us give the information out and the candidates can contact us, uh, but not every state's good at that. Some states pick the delegates at the last minute. You know, um, I think we all know that that list got out this last time because we all got a hundred things from everybody. Um, but, but, you know, the point is, is they might be getting the delegate list here at the last second or not even getting it. So talk about the convention, because that's very different in our party versus the other parties on how a presidential candidate gets picked. Uh, and you can just kind of go with this one for a little bit, because this is a long story, but it's important because probably less than 1% of the people that talk about this stuff have ever been to a convention. Well, the uh, and to be fair, the first national convention that I attended was the one this year. So I don't, uh, I did not experience firsthand uh, any of the previous ones, but the way that it works is all the delegates get chosen and they all go to the uh, national convention. And of course this year it was all cattywampus. So we did it online, but there's a process by which the nominations take place and uh, the first step of it is 
that uh, one of the first steps is that there's a debate and candidates have to show there's a token system candidates have to show uh, you know that they have uh, are one of the top five in terms of support to be able to be on the stage for the debate so you know it's a market system with uh, tokens from the delegates and they they debate in that process and then uh, following that I believe it's usually the next day uh, we begin the voting process and and again every delegate is completely unbound and can vote for uh, whomever they choose uh, there's you know nominations that are made and far more than the five candidates that are that are on that debate stage can be nominated you certainly continue to have the possibility of a dark horse that uh, is not one of those top five being nominated and in fact uh, there are always votes for people who uh, are not actually standing as candidates that are you know, some uh, a delegate will uh, choose to vote for that person instead of one of the others, uh, and so on and so forth. So you have that first round of voting, uh, and it's a uh, you know there's several ballot there there will be as many ballots as there need to be to get to a majority winner. So if nobody has a majority on that first ballot, then you know, you have uh, candidates that are that are dropped off of the uh, of the list, and you go to a second ballot. And if you still don't have a majority, you have more candidates that are dropped off, and you go to a third ballot. It's a lot like ranked choice voting, yeah. except that because you actually have the delegates there, yeah, you can do every round separate. So that, uh, and that is something that I'm a huge advocate for, for ranked choice voting. Uh, but the reason that it's, you do it that way with a ballot where everybody ranks their first, second and third choice is because with an election like that, there's no way to get everybody together and then do a second round and third round and fourth round. With a convention, with the delegates there, you can do it that way. And so that's, to me, that's a cleaner process. And the energy in the room is awesome, right? You you all, I mean, other than the fact that every round takes an hour and a half, other than that, <laughs> it's a lot of fun, right? Because you, you put your vote in, um, the votes are tabulated, they start to come up on the screen, you know, you start to see what the voting looks like. Um, as candidates drop off, they're giving concession speeches and possible endorsement speeches, you know what I mean? Um, and that may or may not sway you. You're talking to other delegates in between rounds. You know, people are trying to get you to move to one camp or the other camp. I mean, it's a it's a really interesting process um, as the delegates who take this very seriously, right? And that's one thing that should be said is um, a lot of people just thought that, you know, that we picked who we wanted and this and that. I mean, these were, there were probably 13 debates. The campaign went on for months. You know, these guys visited dozens of states and the delegates took this very seriously. And in the end, you know, an insurgent candidate essentially won. Somebody who surged the last three or four weeks of the campaign was always top two or three. So I don't want to make it, you know what I mean? But I mean, she surged the last two or three weeks. And by yeah, the time yeah. we got there to was... the convention, she was probably the favorite at that point. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, there was definitely some uh, Joe Menem yeah. going on. Yeah, the uh, that's a that's an interesting aspect to it because uh, you know on the first ballot, the candidate who had the plurality lead uh, was Jacob Hornberger, and I don't remember off the top of my head, but uh, I think uh, that that continued at least through the second ballot. Uh, with with him being having the most of any individual candidate, but he didn't have a majority yet. Yeah. And the people who liked Hornberger really liked Hornberger. <laughs> yeah. um, but the people who liked some of these other candidates, uh, they, for their second choice or third choice, you know, when they when they were looking at the other candidates besides the one that they preferred, far more of them liked Joe Jorgensen than they liked these other candidates. So that's, you know, that, that's kind of how it, you know, that's, that's how it played out for, for Jorgensen to, to come from, you know, second to, to pass into the lead and win the nomination. And, you know, that's really, you know, that's why you have that balloting system. Yeah. One of the things that was unfortunate about the fact that that was an online process is that when it's in person, uh, and everybody's in the same spot together is that there is a lot more opportunity for dealing with each other and working things out. Uh, and, you know, that there's, there could be a little bit of horse trading for various things uh, among the, um, among the delegates. Uh, but that's something that we didn't have the opportunity to have uh, in the same way with a virtual convention. So I'm hopeful that that does not in any way become the norm. Happened a little more in the VP race. I would say there was a lot more phone calls and texting going on during the VP race. And, um, but yeah, to your point, and, and you know, I was on the Hornberger team and the interesting thing about, um, about the way the libertarians do it is we knew it was gonna come down to second place votes. Uh, because Joe had so much momentum. If it had happened a month earlier, it might not have. Hornberger might have had enough first place votes that he could have limped into the lead or into the win with just a handful of second place votes. You know what I mean? But by yeah. the time we got there, we knew that if he didn't get, you know, 35 or 40% on that first ballot, that we probably weren't going to make it because we weren't going to have enough second place votes across the other candidates. And, and so when that first ballot came in, yes, he was winning. Uh, but we 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 all kind of knew where it was headed <laughs> just because the second place votes weren't going to be there. And that's unfortunate, you know, but but it is what it is. And that's an interesting part of libertarian politics. Right. And so for somebody like an Amash or a Gray who had pretty good base support in the party, um, but there were enough people that opposed the races for various reasons, whether it was because they came in late or whether it's because they were too pragmatic or whatever, you know, it's hard to win this nomination if you're not getting a number of first place votes and then a whole tidal wave of second place votes. Well, now guys, I was told by some pretty esteemed political commentators on Twitter that uh, <laughs> Joe actually paid off all of the delegates. Oh yeah, I um, heard that. Right I haven't too. got my check yet. <laughs> Have you guys? I did not get a check. <laughs> I, I endorsed her in February. I haven't gotten, they, she keeps, I keep getting emails asking me for money. Uh, <laughs> I don't think this worked right. I know. Chris <laughs> was an early endorser of Joe and, uh, and it was so funny because I still remember 
you telling me that she was going to win? And I was like, you are crazy. She's, you know, she's way down in the polls and this and that. And yeah, she, you were right. <laughs> yeah, no, that was good. So anyway, so that's how the, the nomination process works. It's essentially, so as we go into 2024, what's going to happen is no one's going to know who the delegates are until the beginning of 2024. You will probably, my assumption is, based on what I'm hearing, is that people are going to declare earlier this time. We're going to have bigger candidates this time. So hopefully we have a real race that starts sometime in 2022. That would be ideal so that libertarians at least get to know the major candidates. Um, and they'll probably all be hitting all of us up on email and, and phone calls because we're in the databases, ex, you know, delegates and likely future delegates. Uh, but again, they won't know who the delegates are until these various conventions happen. Um, and so they're essentially going to have to market to all libertarians. But again, primaries and caucuses are going to happen, but won't be binding. Uh, and that's how 2024 is going to play out. I hope that was helpful for the people who have not been exposed to that right. um, previously. So to recap, just yep. just because we talked about a lot. So just to make it simple. Yeah. Delegates are elected at convention. So if you are concerned about who the POTUS candidate is, you need to yep. be at convention. You need to be in state convention. So that's how you get involved. And that's how you can make your voice heard. If whether or not we have a primary that you see on your ballots is non-binding. So if you want to be involved, come to state convention. Once those delegates are elected, those delegates will go to national convention and they will cast votes for the POTUS candidates. So if you want to influence who you want to win, you need to come to state convention and you need to cast your vote there. Yes. And prior to state convention, you need to start looking at the rules inside your own party and, and contact your state party. Some of them will, you'll need to be a member for X amount of time before you vote at state convention or X amount of time before you stand as a delegate. Um, and if you are interested in being part of a bigger part of the process, then you run as a delegate. And the only thing you have to know about that is you're committing to show up at the convention on your own dime. Um, so this year it was in Orlando or online, you know, Chris and I both went to Orlando um, next time online. and you participated online. Yep. And next time it will be um, Reno. Uh, Reno, right? Reno. Yep. So, um, and there's no guarantee that there will be online next time. Uh, so, I mean, if you stand for, for as a delegate, you're essentially committing to be uh, going to Reno. Um, so think that through but it's a, a very important position and that's how you get even deeper into this process and more involved. The uh, probably a more immediate way for anybody to get involved in helping pick our presidential candidate, even before you get to the point of, you know, looking at being a delegate uh, or things like that is to donate some money to the candidate that you like. Yeah. Uh, that is, you know, something that uh, we libertarians need, really need to get better at is, is donating money to the candidates we support. Put your money where your mouth is. If anybody should be doing it, it's us. Uh, so, you know, I would encourage you to get involved early and find out who's running. And you can take, you know, take as long as you want to find somebody that you really think represents what what you want 
the party to have as their candidate moving forward. But pony up some cash because that's what fuels campaigns. And in my view, one of the things that we had in 2020 was we had a very large number of candidates uh, and we didn't have very many that were raising significant amount, amounts of money early. Uh, you know, I talked about the filing fee for our primary. Uh, you know, it, it really troubled me that, you know, a $5,000 filing fee was such a big hurdle for, for all of these candidates who want to be president of the United States, uh, but couldn't raise enough money so that a $5,000 filing fee wasn't a big deal. That, uh, that does not seem very healthy to me. Right. And so, you know, I want our candidates to be in a position to be able to get their name on a, you know, on our ballot to give people an opportunity to go vote in that process if they want to go vote in that process and to have those results on the news all across the state and, you know, show the rest of the electorate, you know, the people who are not members of the Libertarian Party that we are here, we're going to have somebody to offer. And, you know, if we can replicate that in states all across the country and have candidates who are really bringing in a bunch of new people into these processes that are going to exist anyway, then we can set ourselves up for general election success by building those campaigns through that process. And obviously, if somebody's really good at that, uh, delegates will reward that at the convention. Yep. yep. All right. So let's uh, jump into the more fun topic. So we're going to talk about open versus closed primaries, and then we'll shift into state nominations and the different ways um, that state. So we probably got five, six, seven minutes on this, and then maybe 10 minutes on that, if that works. <laughs> so Chris, kick us off. Tell people what an open primary is versus a closed primary. And then um, Kevin will let you start with the argument. Well, a open primary, uh, which states have different processes, an open primary is one where a, the, a voter can go in and get a ballot and they can choose any candidate who is running for that office, regardless of primary, and uh, you know support that. They, they're, they're not limited by, uh, by it being candidates from a particular party in the primary uh, and they're choosing candidates for the general election. Uh, there's a variant to this in California and Washington called top two. And basically the way that they do it is rather than having party nominations, they have this open primary and the top two vote getters, regardless of who they are, or what party they're with or anything like that, that's who goes on the general election ballot. A lot of people like that. It sounds good, but it basically shuts out any alternative candidates because the Democrats all vote for a Democrat and the Republicans all vote for a Republican. And so when the general election comes around and the vast majority of people who are going to vote show up, they have their choices already narrowed down for them. It's really a bad system. It's made California into a one-party state uh, Republicans don't even bother to vote to show up on general election day for the large, for the most part because they don't have anything to vote for. They have you know race after race, which is two Democrats running against each other. Of course, if you're in the Republican part of the state, or if we had a system like that in Oklahoma, it'd be the opposite, and it would be two Republicans for everything. Right. 
And you can also have perverse results like the 2016 Washington treasurer's race, where you had two Republicans and three Democrats, and 52% of the voters chose a Democrat, but they all split so evenly that the two Republicans advanced. <laughs> so, you know, you can get these perverse results with it, and it's really, and it really harms any alternative voices uh, and disenfranchises people who only vote on the general election day, which is the vast majority of voters, uh, you know, in favoring the primary voters who get to narrow the choices. So it's, it, it's a terrible system. Um, a closed primary is one where you have to be registered with the party on your voter registration in order to be able to participate in that in that primary. And so you'll get a ballot and it will only have the options uh, for that primary. Here in Oklahoma, we have the option for par parties to allow independents to vote in, uh, in their primary if they choose. Uh, the Democrats have been doing that. We have done that in the past. Uh, we chose not to do that in 2018. Um, I, I think we'll get into that more in a minute, but uh, you know, it, it was a case where, you know, it, anybody who went to go get a ballot, if they were registered with a party, they could only have that party's ballot. But if they were an independent, then they could choose a ballot from any party that had opted to let them choose. Right. In my view, uh, we should continue, we should go back to opening our, our primary to independents because it gives us an opportunity through that primary process to reach out to those people and campaign to them and try to get them to come vote in our primary. And if they come vote in our primary, there's a good chance they'll, they'll support us in the general election when we really need them. A uh, couple of the, you know, one of the, one of the biggest objections to this, and I actually agree with it quite a bit, is that uh, we shouldn't be having these state run primaries uh, at all in that, you know, it's basically subsidizing a party in order to pick their nominee. And I agree with that, but until we can get that changed, uh, we don't need, we, we should deal with reality and use the process as it is the best way that we are able to do so to benefit what we're trying to do. Um, and, you know, if we can avoid primaries, which, you know, in large measure, we, we, we have, had primaries because we wanted to for various legal reasons. Um, but, you know, if we're going to have this primary process and we can use it to grow the party, uh, that does a couple of things. First off, it does allow us to grow the party. And second, it will give us leverage to be able to, to try to change the law so that we don't have this process that subsidizes parties to pick their nominees. So I think we should open it. Uh, and, um, you know, there's lots of different ways to to argue around that and we've uh, you know we've had different choices made in the past it's an interesting history in oklahoma where we have had uh, had primaries because we intentionally had primaries for legal purposes we've had a couple of uh, different uh, strategies with that and what are you know it, it, in 2000 in particular it was to uh, try to affect ballot access laws in general right all right, so Kevin, there's 300,000 independents, there's 15,000 libertarians. 
and by the way, just to make this clear, this is not just the presidential primary. This would be governor, uh, gubernatorial primaries, senatorial primaries. This would affect all primaries, correct, Chris? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, Kevin, 300,000 independents, 15,000 libertarians. What's your take? Uh, I think open primaries is 100% the way to go because we're never going to be able to win any election, any statewide election without getting independents to vote for us. Um, they make up such a large pit. They make up such a large portion of the voters, especially in Oklahoma, that it's illogical of us to think that we're just not going to campaign to them at all. And then hopefully they'll vote for us whenever they see us um, to kind of echo Chris's point you know if they see us in that primary ballot then they'll uh, at least have some name recognition whenever it goes forward they'll get on their social media they'll look up who that person is and kind of go through that thought process I know the argument of well we want libertarians to decide our candidates uh, not independents and that's really really great if you want to continue winning arguments online and losing elections <laughs> so I guess my, uh, so I'm supposed to take the opposite view here, and you guys have been uh, kind of precursing all of my arguments here, <laughs> but let's talk through, through it. So, um, so first of all, uh, Chris, can you actually have an open primary where everybody's allowed to vote in anything, or is it in Oklahoma you can only do um, your party plus independent? It is, uh, you, uh, in Oklahoma, it is limited to, you can let independents participate. Okay. We actually had a Supreme Court case uh, requesting the ability to let uh, people from uh, those registered with other parties participate. Right. And uh, we lost at the, at the uh, Supreme Court, uh, I believe that was in 2006. So okay. we are limited to being able to open it to independents only. Okay. Uh, so here would be my argument. So, so one, Trump got 65% of the vote in Oklahoma. 50% of Oklahoma is registered Republican, roughly. I think it's 49 point something. Um, so, and there's 20% are independents-ish, right, Chris? I'm, I'm close on the numbers here. My, my main point here is almost every independent voted Republican. That's my main point. <laughs> and that's pretty accurate. I think there's 35% Democrats and and that's what Biden got in the state. Um, so my point with that is, is by opening it up and allowing independents who tend to vote Republican in Oklahoma um, to vote in the Libertarian primary, you do, especially when it's a 300,000 to 15,000 ratio, you do open yourselves up to an opportunity for them to flood the ballot box and take out your preferred candidate. So should we have a candidate that actually has a chance and the Republicans decide to plant a candidate in there, um, the independents uh, could certainly sway an election. Um, not, not hard at all because they would have to get, you know, 10% of the vote, you know, 5% of the vote to out, outpace all of the 5% uh, participation to outpace all of the Libertarian party. So when the ratio is 300 to 15, it's still very dangerous, not as dangerous as 18, uh, 2018, when the ratio was 300,000 to maybe seven or eight, you know what I mean, whatever it was in 18. Um, it's getting less dangerous, but I still think that the danger is there. 
The second thing is, is I don't think, uh, Kevin, that they actually do see a ballot with everyone's name on it. Uh, unless they ask for the libertarian ballot, they don't see the libertarian listed. Is that correct, Chris? Uh, yeah, if um, yeah, if you have the uh, primary open independence, uh, they should be offered the ballot uh, for you know the parties that are offering it but they at, when they go to vote. Uh, but that's you know that's the poll workers saying you you can choose this, uh, and that's not necessarily. Uh, the same, same level of uh, opportunity that's presented uh, at every polling place, but yeah, they you know they but have to they they, pick one ballot, right? They have to right, right. You, it, if if us and the Democrats both have it open, they can't take both. Right. They got to pick one of them. My those. point is, if you uh, don't get any extra exposure by having an open primary, you would have had to have already had the exposure. Your candidate would have had to already have gotten the attention of independence, because unless the independent is planning on voting libertarian, you don't get any name recognition by um, being on the ballot and having an open primary because they're not going to pick the libertarian ballot to begin with. Right, well, my argument against that would be, like you said, those independents most, most readily vote Republican. They're not gonna be offered a Republican ballot and most people look at libertarians as Republicans who like weed. So if they're at the ballot and they get offered one for Democrats and one for Libertarians, they're probably going to pick the Libertarian if they're already voting Republican and those are their only choices. And, uh, and I get it. Yeah, and that's a fair point, which makes my other point even more serious, because what you're talking is potentially 100,000 people that know nothing about Libertarianism other than weed and now are picking our gubernatorial candidate. You know, I would, uh, it's only an issue if we have A, if we have more than one gubernatorial candidate, and B, if there's one that's really bad, you know what I mean? That that becomes more of an issue. But my point is, is Kevin, if, if the scenario you just laid out happens and 100,000 of them vote in the Libertarian primary and only 7,000 Libertarians vote, then Libertarians are not picking the nominee. Well, I would dispute the idea that... Um that the independents all are going the same way. You have, um, you know, especially in Little Dixie, you have ancestral Democrats who have been voting Republican in federal elections since the 60s. But if you're, if you're in McCurtain County or Push County and you're a Republican, you're not gonna get elected to a county office. Uh, those people haven't voted for a Democrat for president since LBJ, but they won't vote for Republicans for their county offices. So that tells you that you've got a lot of these Democrats who are voting Republican in their federal elections. Uh, and that, you know, that shows that your independents are not some monolithic group either. Uh, those people are independents because they're independent. Now that, you know, you, they have, everybody has a lean um, as far as uh, just about all of them have a lean as far as whether they, vote more often for Republicans or more often for Democrats, but it's not all the same. They don't all lean the same way. They're leaning all kinds of different ways. Some of them lean libertarian. So uh, it's not some monolithic group. And even within those very uh, variations uh, that are within the independents, there's only so many of those people who are going to 
choose a libertarian ballot and only under certain conditions. If you campaign to those people, then more of them will choose choose your ballot. Uh, but if you don't campaign to them, then you know then they won't. And that's the opportunity. It's not necessarily that they're going to see your name on the ballot, although there is something to that. You, you know, it does get in the news. You, your name does get seen. Uh, more, you know, people do understand their options and look a little bit more than they would otherwise. But the, um, you know, the fact is that uh, you can campaign to those people and, you know, give them your message and tell them what you're about. Uh, whereas if they don't have an option to vote for you, then there's, you know, there's no point in, you know, trying to message to those people. And I'll go back to um, 2018 one of the Republican candidates that year was uh, Dan Fisher. And Dan Fisher is uh, very much a social conservative, uh, uh, faith-motivated candidate. Uh, abortion it was, is his big issue. And there were, uh, you know, he may not have made a lot of noise statewide necessarily uh, in the results, of the Republican primary, but he actually did win a county. He won McCurtain County. And so, you know, there were definitely uh, a cadre of supporters for Dan Fisher. Now, let's say we go back to, you know, fall of 2017 and Dan Fisher decides that he wants to get to the general election ballot and he doesn't care how he gets there. And he decides that he's gonna go after the libertarian nomination. Now you can say that's why we need to have the closed primary so that uh, if it's, you know, if somebody does that, that they can't round up a bunch of independents and come in into our prime, uh, you know, our primary. And then, you know, the argument will usually proceed from there that if we didn't have primaries at all, they couldn't do this. Well, in both scenarios, if you have the closed primary, if Dan Fisher says to all of his supporters, you need to go change your registration to Libertarian and vote in their primary, then uh, at that time with the numbers that we had, we had about 3,500 people that came out and voted in that primary. It was a very good turnout uh, for us. It was uh, over 55%. Uh, we dwarfed what the other parties did with our turnout. Um, Dan Fisher could have gotten, uh, you know, a couple of thousand people, 2,500 people to, I think, could have gotten that many people to change a registration and take our nomination through that primary process, even though it was closed. It would have been easier with the larger numbers available for us to counter that by going out and, you know, campaigning to independents uh, because, those independents wouldn't be for, you know, leaning towards Dan Fisher. All of the people leaning toward him would be registered Republican. Yeah, I guess so, I would argue, I would argue that his path would have been easier with an open primary because he could have done the exact same thing, but not had to get anybody to change their voter registration. So then he's just reaching out to his mailing list of supporters, telling them to make sure to grab, you know, the, the um, libertarian ballot on election day and I'll, I'll close my argument with this. In 2000, in 2000 um, I was a Republican in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and we all banded together through efforts with the NRA um, because of redistricting. They had put Lynn Rivers, a socialist, back before there were socialists, 
in the same district as um, that guy who served forever, Dingle, right? So Dingle and Lynn Rivers were suddenly in the same district and John Dingle was, you know, a somewhat conservative Democrat and Lynn Rivers was a socialist. So the 2A got everyone together and all of the Republicans flipped over and voted in the primary. Um, and we all beat Lynn Rivers, who was extraordinarily popular in the Democrats. So we took out a Congresswoman who might have been 35. I mean, she was up and comer in the Democratic Party. Everyone knew who she was. She was doing good. And we took her out um, in a concerted effort to do so. Um, and ever since then, I would say I, I am a little jaded on open primaries because uh, usually everyone says, well, it never happens, it never works. Well, at 20 years old, I watched it happen and it worked <laughs> and, and it was barely, it barely worked, which means that the effort that we did was the trigger that made it go, you know. Uh, I, I would have to look into that race, um, yeah. but it might be the, the exception that proves the rule uh, because, uh, you know, take the, take the Libertarian primary in 2018. One of the things that many people expressed a concern about was Joe Exotic and that if yeah. the primary was open, that all of these independents would vote for Joe Exotic. And I'm here to tell you that the reason that Joe Exotic lost that primary was not because it wasn't open. It was because he did not do a good job at all of campaigning. He wasn't doing anything. You know, I was going around the state knocking doors of registered libertarians all over the state. Uh, Rex was going around doing meet and greets in counties all over the state. Uh, we were out there trying to round up votes and, and communicate to people. And Joe was, you know, in parades on top of his limo. Yeah. Uh, he was not going to win regardless. Uh, yeah. So, you know, this, uh, this idea that, uh, you know, these kind of candidates could come along and independents will just vote for them. Well, that's, you know, that's simply, uh, you know, if they run a better campaign and they have a better idea that resonates with more people, then yeah, they can beat you. But if they don't, you know, if we are competent and we're presenting libertarian ideas, um, you know, we should be, we should not have anything to worry about with that uh, if we're doing a good job. And if we're not doing a good job, then we need something to kick us in the seat of the pants and do better. Okay. All right. Well, that was fun. That was uh, exactly what we expected that to be. Uh, we're going to go a little late here, but let's just spend a few more minutes. Um, on the state nomination process, if you guys are okay. Um, and just, I'll kind of set the table and then Chris, you can chat for a second. So the two main uh, ways that I know of that states pick their um, party candidates are a nominating convention of some sort, uh, which I know happens in Arkansas because I've been there and then other states have had host some kind of nominating convention where they then um, essentially, everyone stands up that wants to run, and, and the folks that are in the room, again, very much like the state convention, will nominate a candidate, um, and then that person ends up running. Uh, then the other way is more of the Oklahoma way, where there's a three-day filing period, and anybody who wants to file for an office can, and sometimes we don't even know there's going to be a primary, 
you know, because um, Chris might be getting ready to file for something and then somebody else comes in and files at the last second and all of a sudden there's two people for that office and another office next door is vacant that we could have filled. Um, so talk a little bit about uh, that, um, just the two different ways so that people understand. Um, and, then, and then the most important part to get out of this folks who are listening is just if you wanna get involved as a candidate, the very first thing you need to do is understand from your local party, which method is being used so that you can start the conversation and, and get in the conversation? Yeah, so if, uh, if you wanna be a candidate, uh, you know, Ballotpedia is pretty good about giving you the information for your state for, for how it works. And uh, yeah, in Oklahoma, we have, uh, everybody goes down and files in, uh, I think it was in April, and then there's a primary in June, at the end of June. Uh, and if more than one person files for a particular office for the nomination of a particular party, then they're in a primary. And uh, like you said, uh, you know, other states do conventions and that kind of thing. Most of your southern states have uh, primaries, a lot of your western states. And that was thought to be a check on the power of political parties so that they weren't picking who was going to run for what in a back room. But, you know, the, I alluded to this earlier with the idea that, uh, you know, that, that the state shouldn't be subsidizing parties to pick their nominees. Uh, if parties should have the ability to pick their nominees in any way that they choose, in my view, and if they want to use, if they want to have a primary, they ought to pay for it. Uh, but we're stuck with the system that we have here, and uh, you know, other states are are stuck with their with their process. Uh, you know, I talked about top two and how that how that's a terrible process. But um, you know, one of the things about it is that for that primary election, anybody can participate, and your party doesn't have to be recognized, uh, generally speaking. Um, but you're never going to get to the general election ballot. So it's almost, you know, in large measure, it's pointless. So, you know, there's lots of different ways to do it and you need to, you know, look at your state election board's website and you need to, you know, check out Ballopedia and talk to somebody in, in your party. Uh, some, you know, somebody locally who, who knows how it works and knows the things that's not necessarily put in the law that, uh, that you'll want to know. And, if you want to run for something, that is, uh, I've, I say it pretty frequently, campaigns drive the bus. You know, you can have these arguments about the bylaws of the party. You can say the presidential candidate should have done thus and so. Um, you know, you want to make a difference and, and change things and how they, how they operate. Be a candidate and show us how it's done. You know, if you're right, and you have success, other people will copy what you do. Uh, it's, you know, but if you, uh, if you run and then that's the way that you figure out that you don't know what you're doing, that gives you an opportunity to learn and do better the next time, or maybe help somebody else who is, uh, who is trying to do that because it wasn't, it didn't work quite the way that you thought it did. Uh, but that, that's the way to make change. Campaigns drive the bus. So, you know, be a candidate, support a candidate, get involved in a campaign, that's where we're really gonna make change and make progress towards more liberty. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think um, 
I think for folks that are young in the movement that want to be involved but aren't ready to be a candidate, jump on the campaign. You know, um, every campaign is looking for volunteers, I guarantee you. <laughs> There's people that will take your help. Uh, and that if you are looking to run, find the right race. Um, Chris and I are big on trying to find two-person races. That's something that uh, you and I have focused on in the past successfully. Um, Two-person races are great. Sometimes they can't happen. And if they can't happen, then find a race that you can be effective in, um, that you can raise enough money to run effectively in, and, and that you can potentially get the word across to as many people as possible. That doesn't necessarily mean a 21-year-old is running for U.S. Senate. You could be much more effective running for a state house or even city council in a nonpartisan race. Um, as Chris, you know, recently found out getting elected with 63% of the vote, I think, um, against two other folks. So he was in a three-person race, nonpartisan, got 63% of the vote. Uh, and that happened to be a fantastic race for him, you know, coming off of a, a gubernatorial campaign. Um, and Chris, don't let me forget that you're up for re-election. So I will let you plug that at the end. Um, but that is how you get involved, folks. Talk to your state party. Look into the races that are coming up in 19, or sorry, in 21 and 22, um, and decide what you want to be doing. Uh, Kevin, you have anything to add before we let Chris plug away? Uh, you know, if you're wanting to get involved, feel free to reach out to any of us. Um, we can probably put you in the right direction to get with your state parties. I know. Um, some, some states, they don't have, you know, the easiest network to get a hold of, but if you want to get a hold of any of us, we'll be more than happy to point you in the right direction. Yeah, I would say Kevin is one of the better networked folks here from a national perspective. Chris was involved in Joe's campaign. I was involved in Hornberger's campaign, so we had whips, you know, all over the country. We can potentially um, put you in, in contact with the people you need. All right, Chris, what do you want to pitch? What do you want to talk about? You know, tell people where they can find you and what you're up to next. Well, uh, I do want to start with, uh, you know, I ran for county clerk in 2016 and I got 36% of the vote in a two-candidate two race. And then in 2018, I ran for governor. I was able to win the nomination and built a campaign and got a lot of people uh, on board and made a lot of good connections. And then last year, uh, as you uh, mentioned, I, you know, won this city council seat and, you know, it, all of that, you know, from starting from that race in 2016 built towards winning this city council seat. Uh, and, you know, that was largely starting out by myself with that. And then uh, it was really this tremendous team effort uh, last year to win this race. And both of you guys helped support our campaign and did, you know, came out and, uh, you know, Todd made a bunch of phone calls and, uh, you know, Kevin came out and knocked some doors with us. Uh, and, you know, it, there were a bunch of other people who did that too. It was a team effort. Uh, these things don't happen by themselves. It's not just, you know, you, we, you find the one really good person and then they'll win. It doesn't work like that. Campaigns are team efforts. Um, but it's ChristopherCouncil.com is my website. Uh, there's a link on there, make a contribution. That'll take you to the antidote and you can be part of the team to help me get reelected. Uh, and I need the support. So I would uh, ask that you do that. Uh, I would also, I don't know what our website is off the top of my head. We have a candidate for a special election for state Senate to replace Stephanie Bice, who's going to Congress in Senate district 22. 
That's Natalie Bruno. Uh, and I'm sure you can Google up Natalie Bruno and find, find that. I think her election is going to be a little bit later than mine. Uh, but that's a state legislative race that if you want to get involved in that, you can do that. There's all kinds of different races at different levels out there. Uh, you know, you can look and see what interests you and, you know, whether you're, it's city council or whether you're interested in Congress or whether you're interested in the state uh, executive races, you know, you can find one that fits what you're, what, what you want to do. Uh, again, my website's ChristopherCouncil.com and I can sure use your support, but find the place that's right for you and get involved and make a difference. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Chris. I think this was a great discussion. I think We'd love to have you back to talk about um, <laughs> some ballot access discussion later on, because I know you track that um, across the country. And uh, that's another thing that a lot of people don't understand. So I think that would be a great episode down the road uh, as we get a little closer to 2022 so that we know what states we need to be watching to see if they can regain ballot access that they've lost here recently. Uh, Kevin, you got anything? Nothing for me. I think everybody covered everything. It was a lively debate. I appreciate Chris coming on here. Um, can't wait to have you back. All right, folks. Well, I think we learned a lot, hopefully, about the nomination process. Definitely ask us your questions. Send us DMs on Twitter. Uh, we will get to them. Uh, and if we need to do another segment on this, we will. Uh, but definitely look forward to ballot access next time, Chris. Thanks again for coming. Thank you for having me, fellas. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, wherever two or more are gathered together, I will talk to them about politics. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. For Thanks, that. folks. <laughs> Bye.